Hello, it is Ryan, and we could all use an extra bright spot in our day, couldn't we? Just to make up for things like sitting in traffic, doing the dishes, counting your steps, you know, all the mundane stuff. That is why I'm such a big fan of Chumba Casino. Chumba Casino has all your favorite social casino-style games that you can play for free anytime, anywhere with daily bonuses. That should brighten your day a little. Actually, a lot. So sign up now at ChumbaCasino.com. That's ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. BGW. Void. We're prohibited by law. See terms and conditions. 18 plus. I called up Ben Rothenberg to tell me about the scandal that has upended the world of women's tennis. But before we unpacked this scandal, I asked him to unpack the tennis and say what he loves about watching Peng Shui on the court. What's unique about Peng Shui is that she has uh, both a double-handed forehand and backhand. So she's just two hands to swing on both sides of, of her body, which is pretty unusual. So she's powerful. She's powerful. She's not the fastest player, but she's powerful. She's very aggressive, very opportunistic, and a very determined player on court. Determined is a pretty good adjective to describe Peng Shui. At her peak, she was the 14th ranked women's player in the world best known for this one match. The 2014 U.S. Open was down to the final four women Friday as the last Grand Slam of the year got down to the real business in New York. Uh, she had made the semifinals of the 2014 U.S. Open. She played a very dramatic match there in the semifinals where she was beating Caroline Wozniacki. But the real drama came midway through the second, Peng appearing to suffer from a severe cramp. It was a very hot day in New York, hot, humid, really oppressive late summer weather there. And she was really fading physically with the heat and having something that looked like it was verging on heat stroke. He has to retire. Game set match. It really was heartbreaking stuff. She was sobbing at the back of the court. She had to be wheelchaired off the court. She was refusing to give up. She kept fighting on. Even after she collapsed on the court, she was refusing to throw in the towel. And... I think a lot of that persistence, obviously, we're seeing now. What we're seeing now started a few weeks back on Chinese social media site Weibo. That's where Peng Shui posted allegations of a forced sexual relationship with Zhang Gaoli. He's the now former vice premier of the Communist Party. Within minutes, her post was taken down and Peng herself seemed to go silent to disappear. Explosive claims from one of China's top tennis players. Everything about this story just screams out trouble. It screams out something's wrong. Well, tonight there's an alarming new twist just as tennis champion Serena Williams is joining the calls for an investigation. And 18-time Grand Slam winner Chris Everett weighing in, saying... Yes, these accusations are very disturbing. I've known Peng since she was 14. We should all be concerned. This is serious. Where is she? Have you been surprised by how long Peng's story has remained in the news? I mean, she's a semi-retired Chinese tennis player. She's not Serena Williams, I guess. If you told me two months ago that Peng Shui was going to be the dominant story in the world for the next month, at least in the sports world, and the tennis world at the very least, that would have really shocked me. I, it, it is amazing to me. You're right. She is not someone who had, had a high profile in recent years much at all. Yeah, it's funny. I get the sense that China's kind of surprised, too. 
Yes, I think China is not used to getting resistance on their narrative. China is all about control, controlling the image, controlling the messaging, and they tried to do that in this story. Today on the show, how one women's tennis player is helping unravel China's careful narrative. I'm Mary Harris. You're listening to What Next? Stick around. This episode is brought to you by Discover. When it comes to your finances, Discover wants you to know they are the credit card that is always there for you. With 24-7 U.S.-based live customer service, everyone has the option to talk to a real person anytime, day or night. Yep, that means no more waiting for, quote, normal business hours just to get a hold of someone. We are talking real service from real people whenever you need it. Get the customer service you deserve with Discover. Limitations apply. See terms at discover.com slash credit card. So I wonder if we can just go back to the beginning of the story, to that Weibo post from early November. Can you characterize what this post was like and whether there were passages from it that you just keep thinking about? So Peng Shui, in this post that she made, was discussing in pretty long detail her relationship with a former vice premier in the Chinese Communist Party, Shang Gao Li, and an incident uh, which most people hooked onto described er- relatively early in the post about uh, sexual assault when she was sort of coerced into having sex against her wishes um, with a guard standing outside the door of, of his mansion. The part that struck most with me and with everybody else is where she made it clear at the end that she understood the futility and the danger of of making her story public in this way. She described herself like she was a moth flying into a flame or a an egg throwing itself against a, a stone. Sort of violent, you know, self-destructive imagery that even still, after writing those words and sort of understanding her fate, she pushed post on this on this piece that she'd written and 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 sealed her fate in a lot of ways, it seems. What happens after that? How quick is the reaction from the Chinese government and from the sports world? So very quickly, there's a very fast reaction on the internet. The post is taken down from the social network within 20 minutes, and very quickly, all mention of her name is censored on on the social networks in China and on the internet in China. All mention of even the sport tennis is started being censored. You can't send messages with that. And in Chinese censorship reaches deep. It's not only public posting, but oftentimes people are having their own private messages or group chats censored as well and, and getting their accounts blocked for things that they said just to their friends, what they thought was in private. Something I found really interesting looking into Peng Shui and her history with the Chinese government was that she seems to have been outspoken and an outspoken advocate for herself for a long time. Like in the mid-2000s, she sort of fought with the government about how much money she made. Peng Shui basically threatened to stop playing, right? Yeah. She was one of the players who stood up most firmly and pretty much got her way. I, China did not want to to lose her as a talent. She was one of their best players at this point and and her standing up, there is there can be some success when you are a public figure uh, standing up to a system 
like the sports organizations that has some degree of success. What she's doing now, standing up against a government official with these sorts of accusations, I think is a whole different scale of, of challenge that she's making. Right. This is about national pride. This is about, yeah, a serious allegation against a very senior member of China's one party. And something like this could really hurt the image of the government, which is incredibly image conscious and constantly image controlling as best they possibly can. Control, again, is the main word in China for their philosophy of government and of, of stability. And that is something that she is absolutely challenged by being unpredictable with this post that they didn't see coming and are now still trying to, weeks, months, almost later, uh, sweep up the, the debris from this that she caused. So after Peng Shui made this post, it was taken down. Were you surprised by the reaction in the sports community internationally? Did it differ from how the sports community has traditionally responded when an athlete has made some kind of allegations or spoken out about China? The reaction from the sports community wasn't immediate to this. It actually took uh, over a week for tennis players to sort of start voicing their concerns more loudly about Peng Shui and her safety after she hadn't been heard from for 10, 11 days after her initial post. That's when sort of the the murmur started more loudly on social media, and then some more prominent figures in the sport spoke up as well. Why the delay, do you think? I think that when the story first came out, actually, it wasn't seen as being a sports story so much. It was seen as being a story about another Chinese maybe dissident is a too strong a word, but someone else in China running against the system and being a story about Chinese censorship and China cracking down on disruption. It wasn't seen as a tennis story, really, until tennis players started speaking up about her silence and not being able to reach her 10, 11 days later. And then when the WTA spoke out, that's, I think, when it really became a, a very clear sports story, when this sports organization was taking a very unique and unprecedented stand. Yeah, I think it's really important to break down who's speaking out about Peng Shui and and who isn't. And then the WTA, the WTA being the Women's Tennis Association. So who are they? How important are they to the world of tennis? So the Women's Tennis Association, the WTA, the WTA Tour, is the governing body for the women's pro sport. And women's tennis is the most successful, most lucrative women's pro sport in the world, has been for a very long time by a pretty big measure. Wow. I didn't even, I didn't know that. Oh, yeah. Women's tennis, if you look at the list of the highest paid female athletes in the world uh, that Forbes does annually, usually at least nine of the top 10 are tennis players. Huh. The amount of money that women make in tennis and the way it generates crossover breakout stars for women's sports, people like Serena Williams, people like Naomi Osaka, it has a way of, of turning female athletes into superstars globally that no other women's sport really has ever matched. The WTA is led by a guy named Steve Simon. And my understanding is that he actually has spent the last number of years establishing deep business relationships in China, like a lot of businesses and sports organizations that see China as a place that they're that they can grow, essentially. So I wonder when he began speaking out, whether that seemed like a real turning point for you and whether he had a lot at stake. Steve Simon, one of his signature achievements in his career was getting this huge deal, a 10-year deal for the city of Shenzhen in China near 
uh, Hong Kong. Big manufacturing town. Yes, and have them host the year-end championships for the women for 10 years, a deal that's supposed to run from 2019 to 2028. And China was putting a lot of value into women's tennis, and it absolutely was a huge core part of the strategy. So when in his first interview that he did uh, on this topic with the New York Times, when Steve Simon said that he was willing to pull the WTA tournaments out of China, that was immediately incredibly striking, knowing that this organization, which had bet so heavily on China that some people nicknamed the WTA, uh, WT Asia, I think won a lot of respect from people uh, around the sports world and certainly within the ranks of the WTA, that their leader was willing to put the health and safety of one of their own above just profit margins. I'm sort of curious, someone like Steve Simon, I mean, I imagine he has Punctuai's cell phone number. Like, when these people who obviously knew how to reach her tried, what was happening in the wake of this social media post? So people had her phone number, had her email, various emails, various phone numbers. And he they were trying every avenue they had, every way they thought they had of, of reaching Punctuai, they were trying, and they weren't hearing anything back from her until... About two weeks after her post, Peng Shui's email account sent an email to Steve Simon um, that looked fishy to him. And then he was far more convinced that it had been fishy when that same email was shortly thereafter posted by Chinese state media, um, which said basically the tone of everything's fine, nothing to see here. I'm just relaxing at home, enjoying some private times. Don't worry about me. Completely not acknowledging all of the furor over her statements and over the very serious accusations she'd made and the amount of emotion and pain that had been in that initial statement. Um, And so Steve Simon immediately was not accepting of that and immediately called BS on that statement. We just feel very strongly that this is is certainly being uh, orchestrated. Uh, It's consistent with those that are very familiar with the region as to how these things are handled over there. And challenged Chinese state media's puppetry on this. And again, a way that I think it was incredibly unprecedented that he was willing to, you know, not accept the party line from this the way that so many other business partners of China have for so long. Around the same time that that email went out to the WTA, videos and pictures started to emerge of Peng Shui in settings that were sort of innocuous, public, again, with this kind of nothing to see here, everything's normal kind of feeling. Can you can you describe these videos and pictures that came out? Yeah, so the first pictures that came out were Peng Shui smiling, playing with a cat sitting in front of a uh, sitting in a room with in front of a wall full of stuffed animals looking like a happy child and hmm. then the and she's how old she's in her mid-30s this was all yeah. strangely infantilizing not that people in their mid-30s can't enjoy cats and stuffed animals if they choose but it was it was strange messaging to put out in this situation for sure then she was uh, taking videos of her at a some sort of restaurant in um, around some other people, some, including some tennis officials in China. And there were some videos released from that and some photos. And notably, one of the people there says a date, right? Yes. One of the people in the video conspicuously says, 
And tomorrow we'll go to the tennis tournament tomorrow on whatever the day was. And this way they just, people don't talk that way. People don't say the date, you know, about tomorrow in, in casual conversation. It was all very clearly scripted, orchestrated. And the WTA, to its credit, continued to not be satisfied with this and continued to say, we see this coming out, but we're still not convinced. And we still want to talk to Peng Shui in person on a, some sort of video call with no other minders present and get similar other, you know, direct contact with her. And that those requests have still not been granted. And so the standoff has continued. Do you still consider Peng Shui missing? I don't know that she is technically missing in the sense that no one knows where she is because she has made appearances in places that people can recognize. But I think her her wellness is still very much an unknown. You know, these are surface level appearances that let people know that she's in the city of Beijing, that she is alive, which is nice to see because, you know, who knew at the beginning and that she does appear to be physically okay. Uh, there still could be a lot going on beneath just that very surface level. When we come back, while the Women's Tennis Association holds its ground, the International Olympics Committee appears to look the other way. Coming soon from Slate Podcasts. So, first it was Dade County. Voters in the Miami area repealed civil rights for gay people by a two-to-one margin. In the late 1970s, Cities around the country began rolling back anti-discrimination laws that protected gay people. And then it was Wichita, St. Paul, Eugene. Successful campaigns against the gay community, which shocked us all. A state senator from California watched the laws fall and saw an opportunity. Homosexuality is a most repulsive lifestyle. His name was John Briggs, and he wanted to deliver the anti-gay movement its biggest prize yet. California realized that they were coming for us. I'm Christina Cotarucci. This season on Slow Burn, we'll explore how a nationwide backlash against gays and lesbians led to a massive showdown in California. Now it's something called Proposition 6, the Briggs Initiative. It would call for firing any teachers in California who practice homosexuality. Your life as you knew it would be destroyed. We've got to fight back. We can't let this happen in California. The Briggs Initiative would be the first statewide vote on gay rights. With so much at stake, young people became activists. We were all coming out all day long, every day. (laughs) And activists became leaders. My name is Harvey Milk, and I'm here to recruit you. Slow Burn, Season 9, Gays Against Briggs. Out May 22nd, wherever you listen. If we lose here, it'll be 50 years before we ever get back up again. Like the drag queens say, take out the earrings, sharpen the nails. There ain't no going back. One of the pictures that came out as China was trying to make the case that Peng Shui was just fine, was of a video call between Peng and the head of the International Olympic Committee, Thomas Bach. And the IOC said afterwards, yep, we spoke to Peng and she seems fine and we're going to get together for dinner during the Olympics. I wonder 
what you made of that, because it was such a contrast between how the Women's Tennis Association responded to these allegations and how the Olympics folks did. I was pretty shocked, honestly, by the initial stance that the International Olympic Committee took with this statement, which really just seemed to be another piece of Chinese propaganda. It read like it could have been written by Chinese state media, like the other statements we'd seen. It was this absolute nothing to see here. Everything's fine. Why is anyone even concerned sort of tone? And their statement, their you know article they published on the IOC website made no mention of the whole reason people are concerned about Peng Shui in the first place, which is the accusations that she made against the senior government official and the immense censorship that she and others in China faced after that moment. Seeing the IOC so eagerly join into the Chinese propaganda was incredibly disheartening uh, as someone who's, you know, watched and enjoyed the Olympics for a long time. But then also I quickly realized the IOC has the Beijing Winter Olympics coming up very quickly in February 2022. And they want this issue to go away and to smooth over the Chinese sporting landscape, it appears, as much as as China does. I mean, this week, President Biden did announce one shift, this diplomatic boycott of the Olympics. What is that? Like, has that ever happened before? I don't believe this has happened before. A diplomatic boycott is basically where the team can still go to the Olympics. You all may remember the 1980 Summer Olympics, which were held in Moscow, were boycotted by the U.S. and a smattering of other countries because of the USSR's recent then invasion of Afghanistan. Uh, so the U.S. pulled out of those 1980 Olympics because of that uh, fully as a team. No American athletes competed under the U.S. flag there. This diplomatic boycott, as they're calling it, basically just means that no government dignitaries are going to show up. And usually there is a contingent of people government officials and some other cultural figures who go to an Olympics to represent the country. Um, at the 2021 Olympics where they were held this year uh, in Tokyo, Jill Biden went as the sort of leader of the American delegation. This time, there's not going to be any of that. I don't think that will make a difference to TV viewers unless it's being talked about, you know, not having to see one foreign government officials, you know, waving during the opening ceremony is not going to make a big difference to the viewers. Um, and so it will be a relatively invisible uh, shift that's just sort of seen as being a sort of almost almost behind the scenes slap in the face for China rather than a public rebuke in some ways. It's worth noting that this boycott isn't entirely about Peng Shui. You know, it's also about Uyghurs and the fact that this minority group is routinely having their human rights violated. It's about crackdowns on protesters in Hong Kong. But I wonder if you think this boycott would have happened without Peng's disappearance? I don't think so. I think that Peng's disappearance made the story resonate with people and gave it urgency that it hadn't had before. We've known about human rights violations in China for years on various different fronts. And they've almost become accepted as part of the deal with China. And the U.S. went fully to the 2008 Summer Olympics, knowing there were issues there already, continued to do other various relations with China Something about the Peng Shui story, about this one missing person who was known outside of China as being an international sports star and who was part of this group, what Steve Simon in his initial interview called the WTA family, that they were willing to stand up for her as an American company, stand up for this one Chinese citizen's well-being and rights, I think resonated with people and became this really powerful rallying cry. 
It's interesting to me to think about what the next step is here for someone like Steve Simon or the Women's Tennis Association. And the reason I say that is because when I think about how this moment will be remembered in a decade, I think it could be seen as, wow, this organization really stood up for its values and took financial risks. But also it could be a flash in the pan. Like if you, if Steve Simon or the WTA really want to influence China, strikes me what they need to do is they need to call up the IOC, the men's tennis organization, anyone, the NBA, they can get on the phone and make a decision all as a group to do something. Because unless all of them are sticking together and saying what they believe, China's going to be able to keep controlling that money faucet. And (laughs) they're not going to have a lot of luck otherwise. Yeah, I think the WTA is by no means guaranteed success from their stance and from sticking to this very moral decision they made uh, to pick, you know, integrity over just business interests there. I think they're getting a lot of applause for that, a lot of praise, but it's unclear what they will actually do for their business future just for their own sake if there will be any way to turn all that goodwill and all that support they're getting into investment from elsewhere, from other companies, from other countries who like what women's tennis has done here by challenging China and want to support them by sponsoring the tour, sponsoring new events outside of China. There'd be a lot of events and sanctions and spots on the calendar on the women's tennis circuit now up for grabs as the China vacuum opens up. So it could be seen as a cautionary tale of a, of a slip if the WTA can't recoup those losses meaningfully in that way. And then, yeah, we'll see what China does in terms of if it acknowledges or cares that it's lost women's tennis. It was absolutely a growing popular sport there in China, but something that pales to the behemoth that is the Olympics, for sure, and something they might find their own way to replace. There are still a handful of, of Chinese tennis players on tour, even though Peng Shui has not been active in the last years. Uh, and I'm curious what the Chinese Tennis Association will do with them. I mean, China is such a big country. I've thought that it's possible they could start their own tour and have their players just play domestic tournaments under their control. The Women's Tennis Association it was, did an incredible job at starting this, but it'll take a lot more than just them to, to see it to any sort of meaningful completion. Ben Rothenberg, thank you so much for joining me. Thanks for having me, Mary. Ben Rothenberg is the senior editor of Racket Magazine. He's also the host of the tennis podcast, No Challenges Remaining. And that's our show. What Next is produced by Carmel Del Shad, Elena Schwartz, Daniel Hewitt, and Mary Wilson. We're led by Allison Benedict and Alicia Montgomery. And I'm Mary Harris. You can go find me on Twitter. Say hi. I'm at Mary's desk. In the meantime, I will catch you back in this feed bright and early tomorrow. Hello, it is Ryan, and I was on a flight the other day playing one of my favorite social spin slot games on ChumbaCasino.com. I looked over at the person sitting next to me, and you know what they were doing? They were also playing Chumba Casino. 
Coincidence? I think not. Everybody's loving having fun with it. Chumba Casino is home to hundreds of casino-style games that you can play for free anytime, anywhere, even at 30,000 feet. So sign up now at ChumbaCasino.com to claim your free welcome bonus. That's ChumbaCasino.com and live the Chumba life. No purchase necessary. BGW. Void or prohibited by law. See terms and conditions 18 plus. Coming soon from Slate Podcasts. So... First, it was Dade County. Voters in the Miami area repealed civil rights for gay people by a two-to-one margin. In the late 1970s, cities around the country began rolling back anti-discrimination laws that protected gay people. And then it was Wichita, St. Paul, Eugene. Successful campaigns against the gay community, which shocked us all. A state senator from California watched the laws fall and saw an opportunity. Homosexuality is at most repulsive lifestyle. His name was John Briggs, and he wanted to deliver the anti-gay movement its biggest prize yet. California realized that they were coming for us. I'm Christina Cotarucci. This season on Slow Burn, we'll explore how a nationwide backlash against gays and lesbians led to a massive showdown in California. Now it's something called Proposition 6, the Briggs Initiative. It would call for firing any teachers in California who practice homosexuality. Your life as you knew it would be destroyed. We've got to fight back. We can't let this happen in California. The Briggs Initiative would be the first statewide vote on gay rights. With so much at stake, young people became activists. We were all coming out all day long, every day. (laughs) And activists became leaders. My name is Harvey Milk, and I'm here to recruit you. Slow Burn, Season 9, Gays Against Briggs. Out May 22nd, wherever you listen. If we lose here, it'll be 50 years before we ever get back up again. Like the drag queens say, take out the earrings, sharpen the nails, there ain't no going back.